0: The GW Regulatory Studies Center is part of the Trachtenberg School of Public Policy and Public Administration at the George Washington University. Our mission is to improve regulatory policy through research, education, and outreach. This is our podcast, and I'm your host, Bryce Chenault. Today we are joined by Laura Stanley, a Senior Policy Analyst here at the GW Regulatory Studies Center. Laura has been busy analyzing various Drug Enforcement Administration rulemakings and explaining how these policies intersect with the opioid epidemic, a very important subject for communities all across the country. She has an op-ed published in the Washington Post, has submitted a public interest comment, and has multiple short commentaries on our website. Laura, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Bryce.
0: All right, let's, let's dive into this discussion. So maybe let's start with what was the impetus for your exploration of this subject area? I know there are a lot of people who are dedicated to combating the opioid crisis, and it's often because of a personal story.
1: Yeah, so before I joined the GW, Regulatory Study Center, I worked at the Environmental Protection Agency, and I worked primarily on pharmaceutical waste issues there. So some of the work I did was answering questions about how law enforcement could dispose of drugs collected at take-back events. Um, So law enforcement does a lot of work in collecting unwanted drugs from households, so they aren't used for illicit purposes. Um, But after they're collected, they have to be disposed of in a way that protects human health and the environment. Um, So as it turns out, There are EPA regulations, Drug Enforcement Administration regulations, and Department of Transportation and Post-Service regulations that all govern this process for disposal and destruction. So, of course, my job was answering questions about EPA regs, but in the process, I learned a lot about the DEA regulations for destroying the collected drugs. So I just got really interested in how the DEA regulations intersect with the opioid epidemic. As it turned out, that while the DEA regulations for the destruction of take back pharmaceuticals seemed pretty convoluted, it really didn't even come close to the DEA regulations that apply to providers who want to treat opioid use disorder. The more than 400,000 people in the United States have died of opioid overdoses in the past 20 years, um, and there's some recent research that suggests that's actually a pretty big underestimate. The Department of Health and Human Services estimates that about 2 million people in the United States. Have opioid use disorder. So I think, um, you know, just in the face of this really devastating epidemic, I started to ask myself, why does DA place so many barriers on providers who want to treat patients with opioid use disorder? And are the barriers achieving their goals? And, you know, are they really worth it?
0: Yeah, I think that puts like a very Human touch in all this, which at, at the end of the day is regulations affect people, and that's that's why we're interested in them. Briefly, let's let's take a look at your Washington Post op-ed, which was published back on May 14th, which is actually my birthday, so another reason to celebrate. Under the post's headline, we need smart solutions to mitigate the coronavirus's impact. Here are 46, and yours, one of those 46, is titled "Bring Back the Methadone Vans." The opening line reads. For more than 350,000 people in the United States, one essential activity is a daily visit to a methadone clinic to treat their opioid addictions. When I read that, I just said, wow, I'd never thought about that. what that number might look like. But maybe, maybe before we go over the rest of that article, let's go over what I see as your central piece in all of this, which was a public interest comment you submitted to the DEA back in April on a proposed rule titled, Registration requirements for narcotic treatment programs with mobile components. So I guess first, we should start off with some basic definitions for everyone. What is a narcotic treatment program, or NTP?
1: Sure. So a narcotic treatment program is really kind of a DEA term of art. Um, But this is really a clinic that provides access to medication um, that is used to treat opioid use disorder. Um, So these are medications like methadone and buprenorphine. So by law, a narcotic treatment program is the only type of clinic that can administer methadone, though there are some flexibilities for other medication-assisted treatments like buprenorphine. Uh, So these clinics are highly regulated both by DEA and the Department of Health and Human Services and also by the relevant state regulatory authorities. So patients accessing methadone have to go to these clinics every single day to get their dose. Um, Again, for buprenorphine, it's a bit different. There are more doctors who are allowed to prescribe it, so patients don't need to go to a clinic every single day. So there's a lot of evidence that methadone and buprenorphine decrease opioid use, increase the likelihood that a person will remain in treatment, and therefore reduce the risk of overdose. So even though these evidence-based treatments are so effective, and there's so much evidence about their benefits, most people in the United States with opioid use disorder don't actually receive the treatment.
0: Wow, yeah, that's that's, uh, that's tough to hear. Um, And uh, so added reason for its importance for us, you know, commenting on these things. So I, I guess with that, so that's laying out the narcotic treatment program. The other part of that proposed rule title is a mobile component. What is the difference there? or Have these always been regulated separately?
1: Yeah, so a mobile component is basically what it sounds like. It's a methadone clinic on wheels. Uh, so this is when a narcotic treatment program that is already licensed by HHS and registered with DEA Operates a mobile component in addition to its brick and mortar location. Previously, DA did approve mobile components and they did it on an ad hoc basis, but in 2017, it placed a ban on approving new mobile components. So, as of right now, practitioners can't get approved by DA to operate a new methadone van. You can only operate them if they were licensed prior to 2007.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. And it, it was 2007. I, I thought maybe I heard you say 2017 the first time, but 2007 is when they changed that?
1: Yeah, it was 2007. So it's been like quite a while that there's been a ban on improving new mobile components.
0: So interesting. I'm, I'm assuming, well, we hope that agencies do a look back on the regulatory changes. Do you know... Or does DEA know what the effect of these added regulations on mobile units has had on treatment providers?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to determine how many existing programs would like to operate a methadone van, but can't because they're prohibited by DEA. But according to DEA, there are only eight narcotic treatment programs operating mobile components right now. Um, So not very many. And of course, all these were approved prior to the 2007 ban. But practitioners have certainly identified it as a barrier to treatment. Methadone vans have been very successful at serving patients in rural areas and underserved urban areas. For example, about a year ago, there was a van in operation in New Jersey, and it was parked outside the Atlantic County Jail, and it treated inmates. And it was so successful that other programs wanted to launch something similar. Of course, they won't be able to because they can't get a new methadone van approved by DEA until it changes its policy. In other parts of the country, such as Seattle, federal grant money has been allocated specifically to deploy methadone vans, but the projects are on hold until DEA changes its policy. So it's definitely had an impact.
0: Yeah, I, I would say so. And it looks like the DEA should take some action. So uh, with the proposed rule in total, what is the DEA trying to accomplish with it?
1: Yeah, so DEA is basically proposing to lift the ban on new methadone vans. So it's a huge step in the right direction. Um, you know, DEA wants to improve medication-assisted treatment and wants to improve access in rural areas. The proposed rule will set up a formal program for methadone bans um, where the requirements are transparent and laid out in the regulations. So as I said before, DEA placed a ban on new methadone bans, it approved them on an ad hoc basis, meaning the local DEA agent probably had a lot of discretion in which requirements that it would place on the methadone bans. So though, having a more formal program should increase consistency in certainty for the regulated community.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a great goal. You, you actually have, maybe we could go through these quickly. You've uh, listed 10 recommendations for the DEA to improve it beyond what its proposal is. So the first two, kind of quickly here, the DEA should immediately begin approving mobile components in response to the public health emergency resulting from COVID-19. Seems straightforward. They should devote resources to finalizing this rule as quickly as possible as well
1: my third recommendation is that DEA should not require the programs to get pre-approval from the local DEA field office before operating a mobile component.
0: Gotcha. And, and that's, to reiterate again, that's because they've already received approval to provide treatment in a brick-and-mortar location?
1: Right, exactly. So these programs should already be regularly inspected by DEA, and they should have a pretty good understanding of how the regulations to prevent diversion work. Um, and of course, DEA is establishing transparent requirements in this rule, so they'll have the directions written out for them. And this will really prevent a situation where a program wants to establish a methadone van but has to wait for approval, wasting you know really critical days and weeks that could be spent providing access to patients. And it might also save DEA resources. And of course, DEA can require the program to notify um, the local DEA field office so that it's aware of what's going on. So my next recommendation is that DEA should allow mobile components to dispense in a different state than the registered uh, narcotic treatment program location if the provider can obtain the requisite state license.
0: Oh, okay. And do you have any, are there any concerns um, with, you know, maybe states' rights or local control issues?
1: Yeah, I think if um, states are willing to approve methadone vans that are based out of another state to promote access for their own citizens, DA should defer to those states and, you know, not prohibit this practice.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And then next recommendation, absent evidence of abuse, the DEA should not require the mobile component to return to the registered NTP location daily or store the controlled substances in the registered location at the end of each day. I would imagine this has some positive environmental effects.
1: Yes, definitely. And also sometimes the vans are stationed primarily at one location, as I mentioned outside the jail as an earlier example. So in addition to the negative environmental impacts, it just doesn't really make sense to make those type of vans return to their brick and mortar location every single night. DA also included another provision on the rule um, that gives it discretion to determine if additional security provisions should be required. So my next recommendation to DEA was that they not finalize this provision because this will kind of reduce the opportunities for DEA to place arbitrary or unexpected requirements in the van. And you know, the benefit of this formal program is that you can increase transparency and consistency for the regulated community.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. And, and then you go on to say the DEA should allow record keeping to be done completely electronically and should not require pre-approval of the electronic record keeping system. Seems like a no-brainer to me.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that recommendation is pretty pretty straightforward. So I also gave some recommendations to DEA on how to improve their economic analysis. For example, I suggest DEA should include a qualitative discussion of some of the really important benefits that can't be quantified. You know, these are really important benefits like the improved quality of life and improved dignity for patients who can access treatment. So DEA does do a quantitative analysis looking at various compliance costs and the impact of the rule on those, but it doesn't include a discussion of these very important benefits.
0: Yeah, I, I think you really lay out the, the the emphasis on the human element here with all of your recommendations, and that's I think that's great. And the last last two maybe we could combine quickly, and they're kind of bedrock principles for the center as well. Lastly, the DEA should clarify that the benefit cost analysis framework applied on the proposed rule is the best used to analyze the reduced marginal cost of treatment. A little bit of jargon there, but it's, you know, just are, are we getting the most bang for the buck kind of concept? And then, and your, your final, final recommendation was the DEA should commit to conducting an evaluation of the mobile program established under this rule. I think, again, a principle that we hope all agencies apply with all their rules to do a look back to see what the effect has been and how they can improve going forward. Now that we've gone through all of those recommendations, which I think they're great, um, do we know if the DEA has responded to any of these, and if so, how?
1: Not yet. Um, So if DEA responds to the recommendations in the comment or changes its policy based on the recommendations, we might expect to see that in the preamble or the response to comment document accompanying the final rule. Um, But DEA isn't obligated to respond to the comments directly. They're only obligated to consider them.
0: Well, I certainly hope they do. Uh, Do you know when we can expect a final rule?
1: Hopefully soon. In DEA's Unified Agenda Winchester report of all the rules it intends to issue. It aimed to issue the final rule last month. However, the rule has not gone to the Office of Management and Budget for Review yet, so it's not clear exactly how long we'll have to wait.
0: All right. Well, I think we've gone through your public interest comment effectively, so maybe let's let's jump back over to your Washington Post piece. Could you just maybe walk us through that article? I think it does a great job of connecting all of this within the context of the COVID nineteen pandemic.
1: Sure. So as you mentioned at the beginning of the call, more than 350,000 people in the United States take a daily visit to a methadone clinic to treat their opioid use disorders. So this is a staggering feat in regular times. You can imagine how hard it is during the pandemic. Some clinics have decreased hours. Some have stopped accepting new patients altogether. And also the evidence we have suggests opioid overdoses are rising during the pandemic. The New York Times collected mortality data from states and localities and estimates that drug deaths have risen an average of 13% so far this year, over last year, um, which is truly heartbreaking. In the op-ed, you know, I recommend that methadone vans be deployed because they're a cost-effective way to increase the treatment capacity and reach patients during the pandemic. You know, and I also just point out that DEA needs to move faster and start approving these vans as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, when when you start laying out some of that data, it's... um... It, yeah, it's astounding. We, we definitely need to take action. So maybe, you know, as final thread here within the podcast, you you also have a couple of commentaries on our website with one that we just p- published titled, Regulations Teed Up at the DEA. You note that the agency is expected to release a flurry of new proposed and final regulations yet this year. What further details can you share on these expected actions?
1: So in its most recent unified agenda, DEA signaled its intent to release 21 rules this year. We don't actually think of DEA as an agency that produces a lot of regulations. Uh, We tend to think of it as a law enforcement agency. So this is certainly a lot of regulatory activity for them. So in the commentary, I highlight some of the major rules aimed at combating the opioid epidemic. For example, one of the rules I highlight will allow patients to request a partial fill of an opioid prescription, which will hopefully reduce the amount of unused opioids being stockpiled in homes.
0: Okay. And are each of the actions that you list in the um, commentary in the administration's unified agenda?
1: Yeah, so all the rules are in the most recent unified agenda, um, and all of them have actually shown up on previous unified agendas as
0: well. Okay, great. And, Maybe related is, is the agency looking to do any changes in telemedicine? I think maybe that probably blends all of this together and perhaps the future of medicine in the US.
1: Yeah, definitely. And telemedicine has been a really important issue during the pandemic. And one of the rules TA plans to release is related to telemedicine. The rule is intended to specifically increase telemedicine access for medication-assisted treatment. So one of the rules is a long-awaited rule that it will allow the practitioners to initiate the treatment over telemedicine for. Um, buprenorphine. So this will help practitioners reach patients in rural areas where there are, again, limited treatment options.
0: Got it. All right. And you have an- another commentary on our website titled DEA proposes to lift ban on mobile methadone bans, which you had re- authored back when you'd submitted the public interest comment. Is there anything in there that we haven't covered already?
1: I don't think so. That commentary basically sums up the public comment we, we've discussed.
0: Okay, great. And so there's plenty of content on our website for everyone to check out. Clearly, Laura's been working hard on this. Uh, has has Congress been doing anything on this or in any sort of related actions?
1: So actually, Congress is driving a lot of the regulatory activity at DA aimed at combating the opioid epidemic. So for example, um, Congress directed DA to release the and rule that it's currently working on, and Congress also directed it to... Release a rule on partially filling prescriptions. So, definitely driving a lot of the DA action here. I think of the five proposed um, and final rulemakings that DA plans to issue this year that were in the unified agenda related to the opioid epidemic, Congress directed them to issue four of those.
0: Wow. All right. So, perhaps we can get everybody rowing in the same direction here. Uh, before we wrap up, Are there any other organizations or individuals you recommend our audience check out if they want to know more about this subject?
1: Yeah, I definitely recommend folks check out
0: the work at Pew Charitable Trust.
1: Beth Connolly directs the substance use prevention and treatment work, and they write extensively on the policy surrounding substance use treatment. Um, Also, the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown Law is a great place to learn more. Uh, Regina Labelle runs the Addiction and Public Policy Initiative there and recently launched a master's program on addiction policy.
0: Yeah, I, I think those are some great resources people can lean on as well. So I, th- I think we've covered a lot of ground here, and I hope this conversation has been helpful for anyone interested in the intersection of the rulemaking process, the opioid crisis, and the Drug Enforcement Administration. Any parting words of wisdom for our audience today, Laura?
1: Yeah, I think um, something that's on my mind is that you know it's, it's not too late to ask why DA placed so many barriers on treating opioid use disorder. Um, And to ask, you know, are these barriers achieving their goals and at what cost? Um, I think these policies are not inevitable. And I think the recent reforms aimed at increasing access to medication-assisted treatment are really good examples of that.
0: All right. Thank you all again for listening to this podcast from the GW Regulatory Studies Center. Please sign up for our emails on our website. If you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at Reg Studies and connect with us on Facebook too. We look forward to interacting with you all again soon. And thank you again to Laura.
1: Thanks for having me, Bryce.